Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So uh, welcome, everyone, to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is Karin Chabra from the Annals of Surgery and Behind the Knife uh, Joint Journal Club podcast, and we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sherry Wren today. Dr. Wren is the Director of Global Surgery and Professor of Surgery at Stanford University. She's also their Vice Chair for Professional Development and Diversity and the Director of Clinical Surgery at the Palo Alto VA. Her clinical practice is in GI surgical oncology, and she also manages Stanford's Educational Surgical Partnerships in Sub-Saharan Africa. So we invited Dr. Ren on um, to discuss a recent paper that came out in Annals of Surgery titled Academic Advancement in Global Surgery, Appointment, Promotion, and Tenure. And these are uh, recommendations from the American Surgical Association's working group on global surgery on, on how we can encourage and incentivize people pursuing global surgery to um, sort of move along the, the, their career trajectory and, and make contributions globally. So uh, thanks for joining us, Dr. Ren. Thank you for asking me. So, Dr. Ren, this is Kevin. Thank you again for joining us. Um, could you discuss with us your entry into global surgery and then specifically how you made this a sustainable academic interest? Was this a typical path? Um, and then do you have any advice for other surgeons trying to make an impact in the global field? Yeah, so I would say that I am not a good candidate to put out there. I came up in a much more traditional time um, when everybody in residency training literally went to the lab, which involved, you know, hardcore basic science at that point in time. And when I entered into my academic practice, I knew that my promotion was going to be dependent on academic productivity um, in basic or clinical research. So I first got into so-called global surgery um, when I knew my promotion to tenure um, for professor was coming through. And I actually started working in humanitarian settings through um, Doctors Without Borders, MSF. And through that work, it just sort of then reignited, like, you know, you can't take the academic surgeon out of the academic. And I realized that I wanted to make this sort of my next academic pursuit, which actually was much harder than just being able to do clinical work in it. So, I would say, you know, compared to people who are kind of coming out now for junior faculty or residents who are planning to make this part of their career, I took a much different path. This is sort of, I always joke, this is my third career in surgery, uh, not a first. So I think what I did um, is more uh, about my age and time in surgery versus where the field is right now. Thanks for that description, that story. Um, now, could you tell us what your advice is generally for other surgeons who are trying to make a global impact and um, in your own roles and, and as, as a surgical leader and, um, and, and as an academic leader, um, what from your perspective are you looking for when you're evaluating, you know, say a graduating resident or a fellow who's interested in global surgery? Yeah, I think that people really need to define what do they mean by the word global surgery. When you speak with different people, trainees, attendings, et cetera, a lot of them want to do what I would call giving back. And that's how I started, right? And that's an excellent way to work where they actually want to take their personal time 
and go overseas and work in a low resourced area where they can provide care in a setting, perhaps provide even teaching in that setting, but not have it be part of their academic career. I think that's a very different model than somebody who comes and says, I want this to be foundational to my academic career. So I think the candidate first has to identify what is it that they want to do. If they really just want to go out and provide clinical care, um, that you can do without having it be part of your academic portfolio. For all the times that I worked with Doctors Without Borders, I did that on my vacation time. So I would save up my vacation time and I would use it for that pursuit. Um, and it was it was a great um, way for me to contribute. I was very happy with it. And that's a very distinctive and different than trying to do that as part of your academic career where you're going to be setting up research collaboratives, educational collaboratives, trying obviously to get funding for those and having scholarly output as part of the um, currency of your academic time. Dr. Ren, this is Shreya. Uh, kind of continuing along those lines, so people who do not, um, you know, have the opportunity of like t- doing this um, more on their vacation time and as we move forward and we want to make global surgery more of a established route for surgeons, how do you think surgical de- departments in developed countries um, can make this a true um academic path and foster global surgery in that way? Yeah, I think it's going to take time. I look at uh, surgical education. So 20 plus years ago, surgical education, I would say, was not part of a standard academic pathway. Uh, There were some surgical education societies. It was not really viewed as a um, traditional path for promotion. And it actually took a fair bit of time before that became acceptable as sort of a academic pursuit within the department. I hope global surgery doesn't take as long, but I do think it is going to take some amount of time um, for departments to get behind this uh, fully. I think it's going to take um, some funding streams. I, th- I think if you look at education, the parallel is also there. There wasn't really a lot of funding uh, for education research. And so people had to craft out a pathway where they could show academic productivity and sort of, you know, demonstrate their worth to a department. And I think global surgery is going to be very uh, similar to that. It's, um, it's an investment um, that departments are going to have to want to invest in. So when we did the paper for Annals of Surgery, I actually invited five academic chairs from across the United States uh, to join in on the manuscript because we really needed to represent the chair's uh, sort of opinions. And some of those chairs had academic global surgery programs within their departments and some did not. And some were being asked by, you know, their faculty to support them for more of that kind of clinical giving back work that I described before, which I I have to say they were not really excited about doing. I think the chairs want to see this be part of the mission, academic mission of the department, which is either kind of research, um, research based kind of capacity building with research 
built into that and educational collaboratives so that trainees can have educational exchanges. Could you uh, paint a picture of that and, and how you've built those collaborations and those systems in your own uh, career at Stanford? Um, I think that we were very lucky in that Stanford was one of the institutions that was participating in the first MEPI program. So I was able to sort of leverage the relationship with the University of Zimbabwe College of Health Sciences um, to get some partnerships. Uh, through those partnerships, I was actually then able to meet and become very active in the College of Surgeons of East Central and Southern Africa, which is a 14 country consortium um, of different programs. So I'm not sure if we had uh, not been in the MEPI consortium, um, how successful I would have been at that point in time. There's certainly other programs which have gone out and have great existing relationships. You look at the University of North Carolina, they have a long-standing collaboration for both research and education in Malawi. Um, I think they're one of the probably oldest uh, global surgery programs out there. Uh, so certainly universities have been able to do that, um, but Part of that was they had some external funding that allowed them to help build that relationship. It got built in um, Burns was sort of the first place. I think you look at the University of Washington with Dr. Charles Mock um, and who's been at this quite a long period of time, you know, working in Ghana and doing primary research in Ghana and development of trauma systems. So I think you see elements of it around the United States. And I think at each of these centers, they're building on those. I would say University of Washington now, they have a new faculty member, Dr. Berkeley Stewart, who started with a Fogarty grant, then got a PhD, and now has both time committed and funding to be able to continue to develop this is sort of, um, I think one of the I would say bright shining lights in the future uh, for global surgery. Excellent. So those are those are great examples of um, individuals and departments who have uh, pushed global surgery forward. Now, if you are somebody, you know, you're an inspi aspiring global surgeon, you know, graduating today, and say your department chair or your division chief isn't yet aware of all these sort of ways that you can contribute as a as an academic global surgeon, how do you recommend that? an aspiring global surgeon sort of demonstrate the value that you can bring? What are, what are the things that you can focus on and when you want to highlight how much you can offer your department and your, and your um, medical school? I kind of look at it as that as a twofold um, answer. First, a lot of programs want to have a clinical rotation right now. You know, there's a lot of interest in global surgery, both at the student and resident level. So one of the first places I think a faculty member can begin to show his or her worth is helping develop that relationship that allows for a clinical rotation. That to me has to be bi-directional. It can't be all about your home institution. I think it has to meet the needs of the local partners. So for example, our program in Zimbabwe, we always approached it as 
what could we do to really help them with their educational needs? Our residents got to go there, but we then addressed some of their educational needs and provided value to them along those lines. You would hope that over time that that could uh, perhaps translate into uh, joint research interests, especially between the trainees. Uh, to me, that would be one of the best things is actually developing um, both residents here and with your partners to be doing some joint research projects over um, under mentorship by, you know, sort of attendings at both sides. That way, everybody is sort of winning. And I think if you look at a lot of the journals now, I, you know, there's a statement, uh, the World Journal of Surgery sort of first put it out there that if you're going to be publishing uh, data from low and middle income countries, you need to have co-authors uh, from those areas and sort of, you know, this let's go over there, write a paper, not really involve people uh, at the local level really needs to be a thing of the past if we're going to develop true academic partnerships with these institutions. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, so one issue is that the, the funding is obviously very thin for these global surgery projects. Um, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but many surgeons are incentivized based on their clinical productivity. Um, without any significant extramural funding available, how do you recommend that surgeons make the case for global surgery activities to their departments? I think that uh, one of the things that we kind of put it in the paper is that small amounts of money actually in many ways can be meaningful here. There's a lot of people who've been able to get sort of the $25,000 to $50,000 grants, uh, whether they be foundations from different surgical societies or intramural funding opportunities, who've really been able to turn that into significant um, kind of scholarly work and scholarly uh, production. Um, so, I think that's a place to start. There was actually um, a paper that was published in like 2015 in the BMJ Open, which sort of looked at global surgery funding, whether it be from charitable organizations, sort of U.S. foundations, U.S. government through either USAID or the Fogarty, um, and where were those sort of going to. Uh, there's a lot of advocacy at um, the college level now to try and get USAID and the Fogarty Institute to uh, fund more global surgery projects. I think you'll see um, originally, at least in the field of, let's say, general, general surgery, general vascular surgery, um, most of them were trauma-based. Um, most of the funding was going to, if there was funding, was going to things like ophthalmology and cleft lips from a lot of these other organizations. But um, I think cancer is going to be increasing. And, you know, there's a new organization. I don't know what, um, you know, one of their stated missions is actually um, to kind of make this global surgery fund. And um, it's the Global Surgery Foundation. Again, it's very new. I don't, I don't know if that's going to provide some help out there. But I do think that there's a lot of people advocating uh, for changing the funding situation. So I, I can only hope that it will get better over the next couple of years. Again, with this whole pandemic thing going on, I have no idea what's going to happen with anything. And we're, you know, 
where funding is going to be for many of these things and how it's going to be affected. But up until this was happening, I think that there was a lot of advocacy going on to increase uh, global surgery funding. So Roger Glass, who is the head of the Fogarty Institute, actually um, had sort of a think tank meeting to start discussing this. And it's it's certainly on the funders' uh, minds and agenda. Whether that translates into something, you know, has yet to be seen. Dr. Ryan, kind of shifting gears to uh, talking about recommendations um, as to how um, medical students or junior residents who are planning to have a career in academic global surgery, what should they be doing? Are there um, opportunities they should be seeking out at the med school level or uh, how should they be approaching this to their surgery department in their junior junior years as a resident? Yes, I, I think that if you're going to make this an academic discipline, actually learning skills that are applicable to your future are critical. So learning epidemiology, research methodology, statistics, all of that is really a critical skill. A lot of people get a master's of public health or a master's in epi um, to sort of help them along that path. Those are kind of critical skills to being able to do good studies and um, getting good publications. You know, I think Tom Weiser in my department is an excellent example of somebody who, you know, really had the right skill set to be able to do the work that he has done over the uh, last years. Um, I would say that's not the skill set I I personally had, and I think it was a detriment. I mean, you know, I did a lot of uh, facts analyses, and um, I could, I you know, did kind of basic science immunology was not really applicable to turning that into uh, a skill set to look at data for um, doing the type of global surgery research that I ended up doing. So I've really had to partner with people. So I think both med students and residents need to get these core skills um, under their belts to be able to be um, to be able to be nimble enough to do the research that needs to be done. I think that's true for everything now. I mean, you look at health services and health outcomes research. I mean, the type of papers that are being published now, the type of analyses are totally different than what was being done 10 years ago. I mean, the field has really gotten much more sophisticated and the global surgery field has also moved. You know, papers that 10 years ago you would have gotten accepted now are just not getting accepted in global surgery because, you know, you can't just say, yeah, we did a, you know, three month data collection of trauma cases and we saw X of this and Y of that. The, you know, the academic rigor has really changed. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's going to move the field in a better place. You look at, you know, what got published in the last couple of years in the Lancet over the, um, African surgical collaboratives. I mean, those are sophisticated uh, pieces of work, and I think that's what we should be emulating. Yeah, that's those are uh, great ideas. Um, so we're lucky enough to have listeners from all over the world. We actually get emails from Africa and uh, Asia all the time, um, and uh, many of these low and middle income countries that you travel to um, are actually listeners. So if they're listening to this. 
why should they work with surgeons uh, from the United States or, you know, Europe? And, and what are some of the benefits to them? And if interested, how should they begin finding the right international partners? I think that there could be um, great partnerships. I think part of the benefit is, in some ways, our trainees actually have dedicated time to be able to go and help collect data and do that. Um, the trainees in these countries are often uh, very inundated uh, with uh, clinical work. Uh, the attendings are often very inundated with clinical work. So it's, I think there can be, again, just this really good partnership between trainees um, where when it comes to the hypothesis setting and data analysis, both teams can then work collaboratively and then get papers and presentations collaboratively. When I first started doing this, um, I actually, I approached uh, a number of um, hospitals in the uh, Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. They run 10 residency programs in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I said, you know, I have Stanford actually pays medical students to do research in the summer. So I have first year students. They have literally not much. They have no clinical knowledge, but um, they're happy to come and do projects. What projects do you have that are that you're interested in looking at and pairing one of your trainees with our students? And I would say that that actually was a great way to sort of start the conversation because what you're getting at is what are the local problems that they're interested in looking at and how do you then sort of help them develop a research hypothesis, um, which is something you know that I probably have a lot more experience doing than somebody in uh, some of these programs. So I think you kind of have um, benefits on both sides. Um, if there are programs or individuals uh, that want to collaborate, I think the easiest thing is, is just sort of look in the areas of uh, what's your area of interest, see who's sort of publishing in that and start a conversation. Because I think there's a lot of people who are very interested in that. I remember hearing a number of years ago, there was somebody who was doing genomic analysis of um, a pediatric cancer that's prominent in African-American children. And they started a collaboration uh, with an institution in Sub-Saharan Africa to look at, was genomic typing the same? Was it different? And it was you know, really interesting data on both sides. And I think you know, both the local partner and the US partner really gained a lot from that relationship. And it'd be good to see more collaborations like that. Absolutely. Are there any specific journals or conferences um, or societies that you keep uh, close tabs on that are interested in uh, global surgery submissions and something that residents or students who are interested in this kind of thing can subscribe to? I think that if you look at the uh, journals out there now, you see more and more interest in publishing global surgery papers. So JAMA Surgery routinely is publishing, Annals of Surgery is routinely, Surgery is, 
World Journal of Surgery actually has a mission to outreach to these areas. The British Journal of Surgery does. Um, Lancet, uh, some, you know, there's Lancet Global Health um, and Lancet itself. Um, I think those are sort of the ones that I would scan the most often. Um, I'm sure there's ones that I'm missing. So what do I do? I get the e-tax of a bunch of different journals and just sort of uh, watch them and see what's coming in. And I mean, there's been, you know, if you look at, there was recently a um, randomized trial looking at medical doctors inguinal surgeons doing inguinal hernia repairs in, um, I think it was Ghana. That was in the um, was in JAMA surgery. I mean, this is very interesting primary uh, investigational research. So I think again, it's really moving the bar to this higher level. And once you know to get those kinds of papers in JAMA surgery and Annals of Surgery, which are the top number one and two surgical journals, I think really elevates the visibility. And when you talk about what's important to chairs and everything, getting those types of papers in these journals is great for the authors and it reflects on their institution. I think their chairs like, wow, you know, these really highly ranked journals are interested in this. This is an up and coming field. Excellent. Well, this has been a incredibly informative and exciting discussion about where global surgery has been and, and where it's headed. Now, before we wrap up, is there anything else that we should have asked you or is there, is there anything else that you think we should know about where global surgery is headed and, and how to get involved? I think that um, the one thing we haven't talked about, and I have heard from, again, people from around uh, the country, trainees who've left and gone into, let's say, other types of practices. Increasingly, I you get... Um, people who have been able to build into their contracts a specific time to go overseas and work. Um, I've heard of a number of people who've built that into their kind of community-based practice. And I think that's also exciting. It's a little bit different than the, let's say the academic path. You also see some people now in the paper um, we referred to the University of Toronto sort of had their first job description for an academic global surgeon. And what would that person look like? What would that phenotype look like? Um, you look at McGill. McGill has had, you know, the Center for Global Surgery and has really been collaborative in trauma research really around the world and has made that sort of their academic uh, contribution. So, I think there's successful um, examples that are there, and most of this was done at a time with no funding. So I think it, I think we can do it. I look forward to doing it when we see more funding. Also, I mean that that I think is going to be the really the next big goal is how do we do this with some funding? And I know of like a few people who have some grants, mostly in trauma uh, research, but there's um, a surgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering who has one in uh, colorectal cancer collaboration with Nigeria. So more of those I think will be 
um, will help increase the um, visibility of academic global surgery to department chairs and I think to trainees. My, my worry right now is I actually, and I'd be interested if you guys think that it's the same, I think that a lot of the trainees are very interested in it, but if they don't see successful junior faculty taking the path and being successful at it, I think that you see them turning towards more kind of standard paths now of, you know, health services research, outcomes research, et cetera, and sort of steering away from um, global surgery at this time. I don't, I don't know if you guys would agree with that, but that sort of has been my observation um, of what has happened over the last, I don't know, let's say five years of people who were as residents doing a lot of global surgery projects and as they became faculty seem to have shifted to um, different areas. Uh, it seems like that might be sort of a, a function of the funding environment that you alluded to before and maybe faculty having an easier time getting funding and support to do some of that more um, domestically oriented work. Um, to, and to touch on that, one of the first things that you said was uh, was that people are increasingly uh, tying in global surgery work into their community jobs and private practice jobs. And so it's curious to hear more about that. Are those, are, is that time typically compensated or is that more of the, the vacation time that you that you sort of got your start with? I think it's all in how they write their contracts, but you know, it's probably, my guess is um, you're probably not going to get compensated for doing clinical care overseas. But what's more importantly, more important is that they made it part of their ask in their contract and it's, you know, being honored and being written in. I've heard of a couple groups where, you know, let's say they have five people and they all agree that they're going to live on the proceeds for the group of four clinically working. So somebody is always out um, doing um, something else. So, you know, they sort of had that built-in kind of deal where the group, they, they function as a group with one kind of always out. I mean, so you see people kind of doing some very creative things. That, uh, you know, I have to ask, being a vascular surgeon, uh, is there a need uh, for vascular surgeons in global health or is it uh, a little more difficult? Oh, my God. You're, you're in the perfect place, the right place and the right time. So if you look at, you know, you look at the world and we first, so much of the time was spent with communicable diseases, right? So diarrhea, pneumonia, malaria, TB, all of that. Well, we have done very well, and, and HIV, of course, we've done very well at really improving world's mortality for many of those conditions. So now people are actually living long enough to get the non-communicable diseases. So NCDs of, which are cancer and cardiovascular disease. So this is really now going to be the next challenge in these nations. I mean, this is the bulk of their deaths right now are gonna, are cancer and cardiovascular. So as a vascular surgeon, you're in the right place in the right time because you know many of these countries have significant tobacco 
many of these countries have untreated or undertreated diabetes. And you'll see there's the specialty now really sort of being recognized that vascular surgeons and um, are a highly necessary um, group to be sort of being trained and doing uh, projects in these areas in these countries. So now I think you have a bright future if you're wow. interested. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. I guess that's great news that they're they're dying of some of these more chronic problems, um, uh, and sure. uh, maybe one day we can set up some <laughs> limb salvage programs there. Yeah, and you know, right now it's it's interesting in Zimbabwe. Um, they were when we started in Zimbabwe in our collaboration in 2012. They were doing some infrainguinal bypasses, um, mostly you know like femoral popliteal type of bypasses. Now there's huge issues, right? You have imaging issues, you have supply chain issues with, you know, having graphs and things like that. But vascular surgery really is a growing um, need in these countries. I mean, if you think about it from an economic standpoint, limb salvage, you know, not taking off, you know, and doing a BK or an AK amputation, um, is a big deal to sort of health and welfare and economic productivity for the population. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, well, that that is uh, encouraging to me. It was a uh, you know a goal of mine earlier on, and sort of has kind of lost sight throughout different things in the army. But uh, we really appreciate your sights into all of this. This has been a fantastic review, um, and we're excited to see this paper covered in in, in the annals of surgery. Um, so thank you for your time in this crazy, hectic time of, of COVID. We're hoping um, to get this information out to give people uh, take their minds off some of the other things going on right now. Yeah, and I think um, we're actually trying to get out right now a uh, a manuscript um, to help sort of address COVID. It's focused mostly in sub-Saharan Africa because that's who our co-authors are, and that's where you know those of us who have been writing it have our expertise. But it doesn't mean that it couldn't be applied elsewhere. I think that um, you know, I was speaking with one of my uh, friends and collaborators in Rwanda today. I mean. You can imagine if New York City is having a problem getting PPE, what this is going to look like in um, sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and other uh, challenged areas. I just my my heart goes out yeah. to our colleagues who are going to be really and and people who are going to be really affected by this um, in the world. Absolutely. The whole the whole medical landscape is going to be completely changed yeah. after this, I have a feeling. So, well, uh, thank you again. And uh, we hope to have you again soon on Behind the Knife. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.